The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show has been brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Two centuries of fruit tree expertise. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. There are so many different types of apples out there, including favorites like the Red Delicious Apple, Granny Smith, and Pink Lady. But there are hundreds of other cultivars that you may not have heard of. This past weekend, in the Ben Nobleman Park Community Orchard in Toronto, Canada, we had a really wonderful harvest festival, and as part of the event, we offered park visitors an apple tasting opportunity. You could come to our table and you could taste five different apple cultivars. So you could taste Macintosh, Gala, Honey Crisp, those are more well-known apples, alongside lesser-known cultivars like Ginger, Gold, and Silken. After tasting, we asked visitors to vote for their favorite one. Now, it was interesting, actually. Silken was the most popular apple of the day. It even beat out Honeycrisp, amazingly. And it was one of the cultivars that people had never even heard of. Now, I love apple tastings because when you taste the apples side by side, it's really clear how different each one is in terms of taste and texture and appearance. And it's the same with other fruit, like plums, for instance. They come in all different colors and each one tastes so different. So how does that happen? Well, sometimes a new fruit variety comes out as a result of nature. And sometimes it's a human or a plant breeder working with nature to develop a new plant or tree. Now, one of the most famous plant breeders in the world in the early 1900s was a man called Luther Burbank, and his story is absolutely fascinating. I learned all about him in Jane Smith's excellent book called The Garden of Invention, Luther Burbank and the Business of Breeding Plants. I got to tell you, I was so inspired by his story that I wanted to do a show all about him where we could learn how Luther Burbank absolutely changed the world of gardening with some of his plant inventions. So my guest on the show today is Rachel Spaeth, the garden curator of the Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa, California. Rachel is also currently working on a PhD in historical plant breeding and genetics from UC Davis. Now, during the live show, you may have questions or comments, so please do email us at instudio101 at gmail.com and we will enter you into today's contest. The prize today for the lucky winner is a copy of the book, A Gardener Touched with Genius, The Life of Luther Burbank by Peter Dreyer. So to enter the contest, all you have to do is just send us an email right now or during the live show. Send the email to instudio101 at gmail.com and do remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. I really look forward to hearing from you.
So on the line is Rachel Spaeth. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Good morning. So, okay, Rachel, can you take us, I want you to take us back into time a little bit. Who was Luther Burbank, and what made him so special? Yeah, so Luther Burbank was the world's most famous plant breeder and horticulturalist of the turn of the 18th to 19th century. He was born in 1849 and died in 1926. Some of his most common inventions that people would be really familiar with would be the Burbank russet potato, which was resistant to the blight that caused the Irish potato famine and is still currently used as um, the staple potato for most french fries that you would eat. Um, The Santa Rosa plum and the Shasta daisy are probably his big three. Yeah, amazing. So the russet potato is the one when we when I go to my local little shop, I'm get buying a russet potato. That's Burbank's, right? Or is that a, a descendant of it? It's kind of a more modern iteration of Burbank's, but the yellow rough skin on the outside with the white flesh on the inside came from him. And the Shasta Daisy, so I think in terms of I have it in my own yard, you know, there's one called Becky. Again, he developed that white daisy, which everybody always wanted, you know, a beautiful white flower in their garden, perfectly white. He developed that and then people took it and ran with it and made it even better. Is that correct? True. And it actually took him 17 years to breed that Shasta Daisy using four different parents from different corners of the world. Wow, 17 years. So what, is, what was the magic? What is it that he was doing when he was puttering in his garden? Did it have to do with, I don't know, running around with pollen in a little paintbrush or something? Can you describe to us how he did his magic of developing new plants? Sure. So he would tap mature flowers off to get the pollen out into a little watch glass and then use a horsehair brush to uh, pollinate the female that he was interested in breeding. And then he would take, um, he didn't really keep good notes because he was not a classically trained scientist. So what he would do is he would rip off strips of his clothing and tie it onto the parent. And then he would recall later that that's what he used for breeding stock. So this guy was basically relying a lot on his memory. So he's moving pollen around from tree to tree or from plant to plant, and he's remembering all of this stuff. Like, did he have a garden, I don't know, 10 feet by 10 feet? or? Yeah, we're not really sure. So, um, like, maybe he was even a little on the spectrum, but he he seemed to recall things. If he couldn't necessarily recall them, he might... Um, just look at what the offspring looked like and then surmise what the parents could have been. Um, It's really easy to tell what the female is in your pollen cross because that's the one you're saving the seed from. But the male might not have been as obvious or uh, memorable. So just a quick uh, email here from Rose, who is listening from D.C. She's entering the contest. Hi, Rose. Thank you so much for emailing us. That's great. Um, Okay. So there's Luther Burbank, and he's developing stuff. Now, in the world today, there's lots of people who are breeders. What, what made Luther so famous? Why do we still know about him today? Right. So Luther Burbank was able to introduce over 800 different kinds of things and completely revolutionize the human perception for what a plum could be. Um, there was a lot of notoriety with being in newspapers then, so um, fame was not as easily attainable as it is now with our digital lifestyle. Um, So if he could get his name in the paper, then it could be distributed um, widely. And during his days when we have like Thomas Edison and Henry Ford and um, Goodyear, you know, we're seeing the invention of the car, the railroad has been built across the United States, so you can move produce a lot faster um, from one side of the country to the other. The um, Panama Pacific uh, link is made during his lifetime, so you can ship things down around through South America. And it's just a really, it's probably a really exciting time to be alive. Now, he was good buddies. What isn't he with Edison, uh, Thomas Edison? And who else were his big famous friends? 
Yeah, we've got a lot of those. So the Paramahasa Yogananda came out to visit quite frequently. Um, we've got pictures of him with Helen Keller. And in the gardens here, we actually have a sensory garden that's dedicated to things you can touch and smell in her honor. Um, and just his guest book is completely full of just super famous names from all over the world. Yeah, what I got out of the book that I read um, uh, about Luther Burbank's life and his business, Garden of Invention, is just how much he was admired by uh, famous people, by the public. And I guess there was a transition at that time from a society that was more sort of new, you know, newcomers from Europe just making their way and planting their first, you know, cider orchards or whatever to people who were a little more sophisticated and wanted fancy plants and maybe even had their own gardens that were not farms, but just for beautiful gardens. So it sounds like it seems like he was at the helm of changing it. And he had a real sense of what people might want. Is that your Definitely. your your sense of yeah who he was? So let's talk about plums. What was the world of plums like before Luther started to do his magic um, at breeding plums? What what kind of plums were available to grow and to buy in North America at that time? Sure. So commercially, there was practically no fresh eating plum market because it's really hard to transport them. We've got trains, we've got boats, but we don't have cars or refrigeration. And so if people had plums, they would have been just home orchards, not a commercial scale. Um, But there was a commercial scale industry for uh, the French prunes. So... um, He worked a little bit with prunes. Anything that you could dry, you could ship. And so that was a much more popular way for people to consume fruit um, or also by making jams and jellies. So the the ideal characteristics for a plum that you would breed would either be something you could dry or something you can can. Okay, so then what did he he feel? Where was there room for development, according to him? How, How did he want to make things better? Um, just so from him not being classically trained as a scientist he wasn't necessarily bounded by scientific principles that were kind of considered foundational knowledge at the time which meant he was willing to cross species um, and see variety that you would get from the offspring that way he imported um, scions and seeds from a person that he knew in Japan who he was also getting a lot of bulbs from And from those, he was able to make just a few selections that he could introduce just straight away. Um, In his day, it was kind of a race for a nurseryman to name something and get it to market because there are no plant patents in his day, so there's no real protection or rights associated with that. Um, And so you just it, it becomes who can distribute something first. So, okay, so he imported trees or seeds from these trees from Japan to America. And and these trees actually would survive in the climate. It's, it must be a different climate. I mean, how, wasn't it hit and miss? And was this a new thing to do to bring in trees from, from majorly other countries and climates? Oh, definitely, yeah. That's definitely a, a hit or miss sort of thing. But Luther noticed that, Um, In all of these things that we referred to as plums, they all have very similar flower structure and general fruit shape. So he just assumed that you could mix the pollen and come up with a new result, and he was definitely not disappointed. Wow, that that is super lucky. So it it just goes to show you got to try stuff, right? You you know, you think, oh, it's never going to work. Japan is so different. It's so far away. And he was like, no, I'm going to try this. I don't care. I'm going to give it a go. Um, We've got an email from Charlie. Hello, Susan and Rachel listening from Thompson, Manitoba. What a very interesting topic. Do you know if there was ever a movie or at least a documentary produced about Luther Burbank? Thank you, Charlie. That's a really great question. Uh, We've done, uh, we did a little podcast with the History Channel that was about 10 minutes long. And I know that there was a play one time about Luther. Um, we, we get some history clips now and then, and I think in the, 
in the Michael Pollan um, Botany of Desire, they talk about Luther when they talk about the potato. But I don't know that there's really been a full feature on the life and times of Luther Burbank. Charlie, if you're a filmmaker, I'm telling you, this is a great story because, uh, honestly, this man worked so hard to bring out new cultivars um, and new plants into the world, but he had no way of protecting his his invention. So he's working so hard. He's quite a genius. And then people can go out and steal and, and propagate his plants without him earning a penny. So... It's a really interesting story, um, so I think that's a good good suggestion for any filmmakers that are listening. So back to our plum discussion. He starts to develop some new cultivars. Are there any names for those cultivars that he developed, and what was special about them? Sure. Um, so the interesting thing about what we refer to as a plum just generally refers to something that's got a thin... Uh, smooth skin and a pit in the center and a flesh that you eat with usually the skin being able to peel away from the flesh. But the plums that fit in or the fruits that fit into that category um, range between either 17 to 40 species, depending on which taxonomist you're you're asking. So so the name plum is a little bit of a misnomer uh, to begin with. Hmm, very interesting. But okay. There are so many things that people call plum. Luther would just collect all of those. And then um, you find a lot of, um, they call it genetic gain by crossbreeding two interspecifics. You get to see a lot of variation immediately in that generation that you plant the seed from. So a lot of those he was able to just plant and market outright, um, like within the first year or two. So a couple of those, his top five are probably uh, beauty. Wixen, Santa Rosa, the Burbank Plumcot. Did I say four or five? I think that was four. I'm I'm waiting for the last one. I'm at the edge of my there seat were a here. Other plum <laughs> we did too. I I guess I don't know what the other one would be considered. That's okay. But okay. So we'll say four. <laughs> so we'll say four for now. That's fine. So these are ones that he may have just introduced without developing too much. Oh no, those are ones that he. Yeah, not too much. So that would have been like first generation, like an F1 hybrid of something he brought from Japan, crossbred it with the European species, and then was able to introduce that in a very short period of time. And we can get those today still at Specialist Fruit Tree Nurseries? You can get most of those. Um, since you guys are um, in Canada, it might be tricky for some people to get things to ship up there, but I know that Stark Brothers is carrying some of their stuff. And another great source is called Trees of Antiquity. They carry um, quite a few of the old Burbank varieties. Aha, uh-huh, that's good to know. And yes, a lot of our listeners are in the States as well, so that's really useful. Let's talk about the plumcot. Plumcot, I don't know if it's a plumcot or a pluot, but uh, tell me tell me about that. What is that? Uh, and, and right. How, yeah. Okay, so a pluot is something that was bred by Floyd Zegger and trademarked with the name pluot. He coined that term and patented it so that anything that came out of his production line could be called a pluot. Luther Burbank called them plumcots when he was crossbreeding a plum and an apricot. So um, a lot of people didn't believe that Luther was actually capable of doing this, and it wasn't until Floyd Zegger was able to reproduce some of those crosses and then advance the germplasm line that people really stood back and said, okay, well, maybe Luther was right. And then when we started sequencing the genomes of things, you can really see in Luther's plums or his plumcot introductions that there are plum and apricot genes in there. So when you taste the fruit, is it like an apricot? Is it like a plum? What does it look like? There is a huge amount of variation that you can get from a plumcot, and it depends on how much of your genome sorts that was plum and how much was apricot. I don't know if I've really seen any furry-skinned um, plumcots or pluots. You might see them as apriums. So an aprium is three-quarters apricot, one-quarter plum. Wow. <laughs> Where the mother was the apricot. And the plumcots and pluots, the mother was the plum, and it was crossbred with an apricot. 
We've got a comment here. Well, first a comment from Monique. Uh, Monique says, hi, just wanted to say hi. Love the great information. Better than a library. I am in Whitehorse, Yukon. Thank you so much, Monique. That's really nice. And I've got another one from Joyce and uh, titled, thank you. Wow, I guess Rachel is the Indiana Jones of the plant world. Her work is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for all of it from Queens NYC. Thank you, Joyce. Okay, and then here we've got from Daniel. Daniel says, I'm growing, and I don't know where, oh, Daniel's from California. I'm growing Apex Plumcot that I sourced from the CRFG Scion Exchange in San Jose, California. It's good, but not exceptional. I prefer firmer flesh. It's definitely not as sweet as some of the modern hybrids. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of alternatives that you could go with with that. Um, Shiro is a really good plum that would do well in that area. And then also um, El Dorado, both of which are usually available through those. Uh, CRFG stands for California Rare Fruit Growers. Uh -huh. And we have chapters all over the country, even though it started in California. And every year in the wintertime, we do a big scion exchange, which is like a huge stick swapping party. And we just have these really long tables with all kinds of unpatented material that people can take home and then graft onto their existing tree or uh, we'll custom graft stuff for people, too. And Throughout um, Northern California especially, a lot of the Burbank cultivars are available. In the past five years, I've been able to collect almost 60 of his 200 plum introductions. Wow. So th these are 60 that still exist. You, you can find them. But of the rest of the 200, have some of them disappeared over the many years that have passed since, his, uh, since we lost him? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, all it takes is a fruit to not really be that favorable and not being grown, and then it can become extinct fairly quickly. And a lot of his creations are kind of like that. Uh, for example, he did a lot of work with breeding dahlias, and uh, a dahlia tuber just simply isn't that long-lived. So when we show people our dahlias here, we show them modern iterations of things that were based on Luther Burbank's work. Hmm. And that's another interesting thing. I think for people listening, many of the people listening know that, you know, you plant an apple seed, for instance, and wait for it to become a tree and that the apples on that tree will be nothing like the original apple that you ate and you spat out the seeds. And that once people like Luther Burbank, they invent something through, you know, cross, I mean, a poll pollination and all the work and fiddling that he does. In order to propagate that tree, in particular, if it's a fruit tree, they need to graft it, taking what you call, you know, those sticks of, you know, just branches from the the tree that you want to propagate, you know, the perfect pluot tree, and then putting it onto rootstock, uh, you know, fusing those together, and then you can propagate that tree. It's basically cloning the tree. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, absolutely. Um, and Luther was really into grafting because it speeds up the amount of time necessary to get a fruit set. If you were to start that seed, it might be five to seven years before you can evaluate that fruit. But if you start that seed and then graft it onto a mature tree, um, the mature tree kind of takes over the genetic flow. Uh, well, the gene doesn't flow back and forth. The genetic flow is probably wrong. But internal hormones, I would say. Um, so it moves those hormones into that young stick, and then you can get fruiting within two years instead of seven. So, Rachel, you know, Joyce had mentioned that you're like the Indiana Jones of the plant world. Let's face it, and you can be humble, but uh, you do a bit of that. So tell us about the multi-apple tree that you have fun with, uh, with the right, different apple so cultivars. The, the funny thing about the Indiana Jones of the plant world, there's an Atlas Obscura piece that's about my plum research. And that's what she's referring to when she says that. Um, so the multi-grafted apple tree that I have has over 50 cultivars of apples that are grafted onto one small tree. The tree is only about seven years old, and just about every single branch on the tree has a unique kind of fruit. 
That's incredible. And so I have a picture. And if people go to Orchard People's Facebook page, I put that picture of your tree on it. And and in front of it is a box with the different apples and the beautiful different colors of each apple. It's such a great picture. Oh, thank you. Unfortunately, that tree is right next to the restrooms and people see the fruit on it and just assume that a a red apple on a tree is ready to eat. And so most of those apples on the other side had like half a bite taken out of them. Oh, (laughs) no. Oh, no, that is heartbreaking. And, you know, I grow my fruit trees in a community a park, basically. It's a community orchard. And, and we do get to harvest our cherries and our apricots and our plums. But by the time the apples ripen, well, actually, before they ripen, most of the people, park visitors, just take them and eat them. And oops, they're not ripe. They throw them away. <laughs> heartbreaking, isn't it? Quite yeah, heartbreaking. The, the one that really gets us, though, is his quince. So Luther Burbank also introduced like seven different kinds of quince. Quince isn't really a popular fruit anymore because it's just this, like, big, hard, it smells good, it looks kind of like an apple, but you have to cook it with an equal portion of sugar to make it delicious. In Luther's day, though, it was a natural source of pectin, so anybody that would be canning jams and jellies would have a quince so that they could use it to solidify their jams and jellies. Hmm. So that so you're saying quince was another one that he he played around with and developed and improved. Yeah, and it's another one that we get bite marks. That you get bite marks in. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, that is so sad. We've got an email from Dawn. Hello, really enjoying the the show from Selma, Alabama. Very interesting. Thanks. Thank you, Dawn. So why don't we um, take a minute? Rachel, you okay holding on the line for a minute? And we will continue this conversation. I want to talk about berries, the berries that he invented after the break. So are you okay holding the line while we listen to some words from our sponsors? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. Well, coming up, we're going to talk about more of Luther Burbank's inventions. We're going to answer your questions about all sorts of stuff. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is RealityRadio101.com, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. We'll be back right after the break. Stark Brothers is primarily a direct-to-consumer marketer of fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees. We do this on a national basis. We're the largest as far as what we do, and we've been doing it for 200 years. The company started in 1816 when James Hart Stark brought his family and a satchel full of apple science across the Mississippi River, settled here in what is now Louisiana, Missouri. The big first apple for Stark Brothers was the Red Delicious Apple, and it started in 1893. And then 20 years later, in 1914, the Golden Delicious Apple was mailed to the facility here. Two-thirds of all the apples eaten in the world today are cousins of these two apples. Essentially, they have the DNA of the Red Delicious or Golden Delicious Apple in their DNA. We have about eight acres of warehouses, and we have between 350 and 400 acres of field production going on every year, which is split into two crops, the crop you're budding and the crop you're selling. We have about five acres of greenhouses. We offer a wide variety of product. We're growing woody fruit trees, small fruits, raspberries, blueberries, knockout roses, kiwis. There's always a new product coming out or a new technique. E-commerce has changed our business model completely, and we recognize we're open 24-7, and the customer wants their merchandise faster and sooner than they ever have. What works well with us is that, one, we're centrally located, that 75% of our customer base is within two days' time in transit. We'll send an email on a Monday, and if you place your order today or tomorrow, you'll be planting this weekend. Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Learn more at starkbros.com. Hi everyone, congratulations on investing in a new fruit tree. Fruit trees are a blessing. With just a bit of skilled hands-on care, they can give you plenty of delicious organic fruit for years to come. I'm Susan Poisner, an urban orchardist from Toronto, Canada. And over the years, I've learned that how we care for our trees when they're young will determine their success and productivity in the long term. 
If you do want to learn more, there's lots more that I would love to teach you, like how to prune fruit trees of all shapes, ages, and sizes, how to optimize tree health, and various different ways to protect your trees from pests and disease. So check out my website at orchardpeople.com where you can watch free videos and read great blogs about growing fruit trees. Or you can check out my online certificate in beginner fruit tree care, where in just eight hours, including fun and informative videos, interactive quizzes, and information-packed eBooks, you can learn how to keep your tree healthy and productive for years to come. Happy growing from orchardpeople.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and podcast brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In today's show, we've gone back in time to meet a man and plant breeder who revolutionized the world of gardening in the early 1900s. His name was Luther Burbank, and he was known as a plant wizard who could create outstanding varieties of fruit trees and other plants. And many of his plants are still in our gardens today. My guest on the show is Rachel Spaeth, garden curator of the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa, California. Rachel is also working on a PhD in historical plant breeding and genetics from UC Davis. If you're listening to the show live, do send us an email with your question or comment and we'll enter you into today's contest. If you win, we'll send you a copy of the book, A Gardener Touched with Genius, The Life of Luther Burbank by Peter Dreyer. So just send us an email now with your question or comment. Send it to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So Rachel, let's talk a little bit about the types of berries that uh, Luther Burbank introduced. Where, what did he bring out that was new in terms of berries? The three big berries that Luther brought out that were new would be the thornless blackberry, which is amazing for harvesting or pruning, um, the white blackberry, which was bred to for ladies having tea so they wouldn't stain their white gloves when eating a blackberry tart. Um, he did an interspecific hybrid between a blackberry and a raspberry called the phenomenal berry. And then the most widely successful um, though also invasive and delicious, uh, would be the Himalayan blackberry. So, so what was, that was an interesting thing about getting, you know, your white gloves dirty. It's not a problem I've had before. I don't know. Have you had a problem with blackberries in your white gloves? I don't tend to wear white gloves. <laughs> I know that was an interesting one. Why do you need a white blackberry? Does it still exist? I wonder if it tasted good. You know, it's quite delicious. It's almost disappointing how much it just tastes like a blackberry. Um, I would say that it has a more, like, kind of citrusy note to it. Hmm. And um, the one that we had here uh, was infected with the raspberry bushy dwarf virus. Um, so we weren't going to propagate it for sale here. But we worked with a whole bunch of different research institutions. And finally, after about six years, we were able to get it introduced through AgriScarts in Florida, who did two years of heat treatment and tissue culture on this to be able to make it virus-free so that we can once again distribute uh, the Snowbank white blackberry. Oh, wonderful, Snowbank. Okay, so it is available now already, the white blackberry. Yeah, I mean, if people want to order it so that they can have it shipped to their house, they probably have to go through um, 
Baker Creek heirloom seeds. Um, or if they are in a commercial industry, they can probably order from AgriStarts directly. We huh? only distribute them locally. That's exciting. Um, we've got a, a question here from or a comment from Chelsea. Chelsea says, Himalayan blackberry was supposedly created by Burbank in hopes of being a vigorous food crop, but it's now naturalized throughout the Pacific Northwest. It's incredibly resilient and hard to remove. They're amazing berries, some of the best, she says. They're considered invasive and they're also considered delightful. I refuse to vilify plants, but this is an example of Burbank's work that is now owned by the world impossible to commodify it will likely never leave the region that's interesting so essentially when you're a plant wizard and you're creating new plants you don't know what the effect is so what what chelsea is saying is it became invasive even though she likes it it's taking over from native plants what what's your comment on that rachel Absolutely. It has displaced some natives, like we had a California native blackberry that used to line our waterways. Um, but the Himalaya has now kind of taken that over. And it's a problem that goes from here all the way up through, uh, I think, even into Washington and maybe on the other side into Canada, too. Uh, but even though Luther Burbank created and introduced this, it really was the birds who distributed it. So it's become widely successful and naturalized because it became part of the system. Um, so it, and it is difficult with that particular berry because it is a, it is a food stability item. Um, anybody, I mean, I, I recommend waist higher, higher because people walk their dogs along the creeks, right? But um, they're delicious berries and they're free for the taking. So it does create a food security for, you know, less, franchise people or people that are just willing to pick sharp berries. If it is in your yard, though, it's extremely difficult to get rid of. And when they talk about, I've heard people talk about bramble being, you know, you know, invading the, their, you know, orchard or whatever, their garden. Is that bramble? Yeah, you could consider them bramble canes. So what makes it a bramble cane is that it, it can bend down and root itself like an air layer really, really easily. Basically, any time that main stem bends down towards the ground, if it's touching soil, it'll root. Mm-hmm. So you're blaming the birds, and but the bramble or the, these uh, these blackberries are also doing it themselves, spreading inch by inch around nature. Absolutely, yeah. And then it also has become habitat here in California for an endangered freshwater shrimp that we have. And so in some areas where they have located the shrimp you are not allowed to dig it out Hmm. because it is habitat for that endangered species Mm, interesting we have an email here from gail and uh, thank you gail for sending this in uh gail says hi just tuned in so don't know if you've already covered this does rachel have a website or facebook page that i can go to thank you Uh, gail is from regina saskatchewan so do you want to tell us about uh, the, the um, you know, what web page can people go to for more information? Sure. You can go to www.lutherburbank.org, and our Facebook page is Luther Burbank Home and Garden. The site that um, I work at is 1.6 acres, and it is where Luther lived for a considerable amount of time. His original greenhouse is here that was built in 1889, and you'll see that lovely picture on the Orchard People website that I got of a rainbow. I really wanted to get it going into the chimney, but I would have been in the pond, so uh, (laughs) I had to get it off to the side there. Uh, The Home and Gardens is set up to have a museum um, where people can go inside and learn about Luther Burbank with docent-led tours. Um, And then we also have 26 raised demonstration beds that all contain plants that Luther either worked with directly or our modern iteration because of his genetics work. Um, and then the themed areas just have to have a theme like a rose garden or a cut flowers garden or something like that. And if you're planning a visit to come out and see us here in Santa Rosa, you can go onto our what's blooming in the garden section and look at what you might expect to see in flower during whatever particular time of year. Yeah, it sounds great. And um, since I became interested in Luther Burbank, I'm totally going to come visit you one day. I really look forward to it. And I just want to learn more. I love history. 
And so does Ralph, it looks like. Ralph sent us an email entitled, Hi. Um, Ralph says, Hi, Susan. This is an amazing topic today, especially for history buffs. Love the show. Thanks. From Atlantic City, New Jersey. Yeah, I love history. So there you go. We've also got one from Larry. Uh, So many famous people were intrigued by this man, yet many folks have never heard of him or what he has done. Thank you for bringing all of this to light. I'm tuned in from Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you, Larry. And uh, yeah, such an exciting topic. So interesting and so much to learn. So let me maybe squeeze in one more question uh, for you. And this one is from John from London, Ontario. This is before we're going to have a little uh, respite to listen to some sponsors. But before we do, um, John from London, Ontario says, I've been growing heritage apple and pear cultivars, cultivars on our farm near Peterborough, Ontario, but have never tackled plums or peaches. I'm wondering if one of the two is easier than the other to grow. If so, what cultivars of either plums or peaches might Rachel recommend for central Ontario? Rachel, I I know you're not from Ontario, but I don't know if you have any ideas of interesting heritage, easy to grow plums or peaches. Oh, sure. I'm actually from Pennsylvania, so I understand uh, shoveling your weather in the wintertime. Uh, I just don't like to do it anymore. (laughs) And Luther Burbank was from Massachusetts. So we, we do get a little bit of that. One time he was back in Boston uh, giving a lecture, and somebody asked him, if you could raise anything in Boston, what would it be? And he said, enough money to get back to California. <laughs> um, but I do know that there are a couple of peach cultivars that work really well in hardiness zones. Like you're probably like four or five up there maybe. Um, one of them is called Reliance. And it is a freestone yellow peach that's fantastic for canning. And the other one is a newer cultivar that's called Contender. Uh, my mother grows both of those in Pennsylvania, and so and she gets a really nice fruit set every year. The cool thing about peaches is that they are self-fertile, so you don't need to have an additional cultivar to get a good fruit set. I think that sounds like great advice. Plums, Most of them are outcrossers, so you really do need another source of pollen to get a good fruit set. Um, Here, a lot of the Japanese plums will work, and we can grow pretty much anything. Luther said it was the chosen spot of all the earth to grow plants. Uh, But I know that some of the damson plums and some of the gauge plums, which are both like kind of more Eastern European, uh, well, Central, maybe even Western European, I guess. It's, it's like all over there. Uh, those would probably work, but wouldn't be as reliable of producers. That sounds like good advice. Okay, so let's just take a few minutes and hear some words from our sponsors. But let's come back after a break and continue this conversation, answer some more questions, and learn more about Luther Burbank and his life and his inventions. So, Rachel, you okay staying on the line for a minute or two? Absolutely. Great. Well, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. And we'll be back right after the break. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to earthalivect.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. (laughs) 
If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Whiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You could learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today. In today's show, we've been talking about the life's work of Luther Burbank, the world's most famous horticulturalist from the turn of the 20th century. So my guest on the show today is Rachel Spaeth, the garden curator of the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa, California. There are a few minutes left if you want to enter today's contest to win a copy of the book, A Gardener Touched with Genius, The Life of Luther Burbank by Peter Dreyer. To enter the contest, just send us an email right now with your question or comment, and our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. Just remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. So um, we already have a few more emails here. So uh, Rachel, we've got an email from Jake. Jake says, no questions today, just very curious regarding your topic. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Thank you, Jake. I was in your hometown recently for an arborist conference. It's a really, really pretty town. Thank you for writing us. So uh, Rachel Let's go back to Burbank and his uh, inventions. Did he? When did you first learn to learn about him? And did he inspire you early on in your journey? I didn't learn about Luther Burbank until I moved to Santa Rosa. I came to California seeking a cheaper education and better weather, and I got both. And I used to live in the neighborhood of the home and gardens and work on the other side. And instead of cutting down the busy street, I would walk through the serene garden. And I got started here as a volunteer uh, while I finished degrees in horticulture and botany and evolutionary biology and all that stuff. So I didn't really hear about him until I came here. And then he's just such a fascinating character with so many rabbit holes. I'm always learning new things. I'm always finding new things. And there are always surprises that pop up in the gardens that I haven't seen. And I've been here for like 11 years. Wow. Well, where did you, when did you start growing fruit trees and get your interest in fruit trees then? I'm from a very rural community in Pennsylvania. Uh, My hometown is only nine-tenths of a mile wide, and I was raised eight miles outside of that town. And we grew a lot of um, our own fruits and vegetables and did a lot of canning and preserving. So, like, the Macintosh apple tastes like my childhood. Mm. Well, by the way, it's interesting that you say that because in, early on in the show, I talked about an apple tasting. And, of course, you know that the Macintosh apple came from my home province, Ontario, John McIntosh was the one who discovered that apple. And yet out of five cultivars, I hate to tell you, my dear, but McIntosh was way down at the bottom. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. I think it's just because the flavor is so familiar that um, that, that's like the the chicken soup of of the apple world now. There's so many other amazing, incredible flavors and textures. And the taste palette has really changed since uh, that was first introduced. 
even here, um, whenever we're tasting the blackberries, we have Lawton, which was one of the original parents for the snowbank. And when you taste that, it's not a huge berry, and it has a slight bitter aftertaste to it that uh, people bred out later because it was no longer favorable. People just want sweet, sweet instead of slightly bitter. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So we've got an email uh, here from Tony from Arizona. My peach harvest was challenging. Timing of harvest, question mark. Fruit still greenish. Wait longer. Fruit spoils too quickly. No shelf life. I think Tony from Arizona is asking for some advice from you. It sounds like you need to regraft a new cultivar. But there are a couple of funny things about that. So, um... When you see a peach in the store and it's got that beautiful pink flush, a lot of times it's just because the pink side was towards the sun. And the pink side seems to be like what the market preference is. So a lot of people are trying to breed peaches that'll end up with that pink blush to them. Um, a lot of times you need to pick them before the bears or the birds will get them or hear the people. And so you are picking something that's a little bit more insipid. But I would say if, you don't re- if you're not really happy with it, just graft something on it that you might like better. Yeah, and I like that because what you're saying is don't dig out and, and throw away an established tree. Um, whatever age the tree is, if you get some basic grafting skills, you can play with it, right? If it's young, you can do it. If it's older, is that true, Rachel? Oh, absolutely. You can graft a tree at any age. Hmm. And so she doesn't have to throw away all the old branches of the tree either. Keep some branches. Do what you do with your apple tree. You know, graft on a branch here and there and uh, see what happens. Well, and the really, really cool thing about peach and things in that prunus genera in general um, is they're mostly compatible. So she can take that peach tree and she could graft almonds and peaches and plums and apricots all onto that tree and have an entire fruit salad tree that she gets a huge harvest out of that encompasses, you know, from the beginning of or the middle of June when your fruiting season starts and goes all the way through September. So it becomes a really functional home tree if you have a large established tree that you can change like that. Now, that is such a fun idea, but I want you to clarify something because early on in the show, you said that when Luther Burbank developed his plums, he was using a bunch of different species that everybody called plums, but they were different things. And so let's clarify here, because if I have an apple tree, can I graft on a branch for cherries and for apricots? No. So that um, so you have to look at the fruit structure a little bit. An apple is called a pome, and a pome is a, seed, is a fruit that um, you cut in half, and it has five little seeds in there. And essentially with an apple, you're eating an expanded hypanthium is the technical term for the floral cup that you're eating in an apple. But with a plum, you're eating what's called um, the mesocarp, which is a swollen tissue that protects the ovary essentially um so you want to stick and those are called stone fruits or droops so you need to stick with stone fruits on stone fruits and seed fruits on seed fruits um apple can be a little bit tricky um well actually it's really forgiving if you're just putting apples on apples but if you want to put other things onto an apple that are apple like like say pears there are some issues with that so the first issue with that is that pears produce a compound in their conducting tissue that apples are not strong enough to tolerate. So if you put um, a pear scion onto your apple, those compounds will move down through your conducting tissue and eventually the pear will just die off. The other problem with it is that pear is like the early bird, like super chipper, ready to roll at dawn and ready to meet their day. And Apple is like the person that likes to wake up at 930 and they need coffee to really function, right? So Pear wakes up in the beginning of spring and it's like, I'm ready to go. And Apple says, not yet, I'm still tired. And so the Pear starves whenever you're trying to grasp the Pear onto the Apple. Hmm. Wow, who would have thought that pears and apples just don't don't have enough in common, really? 
to get yeah, along. You can put them both onto Clint, which is really interesting, or even Hawthorne, which is even further distantly related. Hmm. So I have one last question for you. We're coming up to the end of the show. We're going to figure out who wins the prize today, but I want to bring up something that I'm surprised we didn't have a question about this. We're talking about inventing new cultivars, and we haven't mentioned at all genetically modified cultivars. How does that different from everything we've been talking about today and from what Luther Burbank did for all those years? Gotcha. Okay, so what Luther would do um, is he would take one color palette and another color palette and smash them together, and then you would have this new combination of colors that you could have at the end. What genetic modification does is it adds more paint onto the palette. Mm-hmm. By just like squeezing a color from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Interesting so, way. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't have that technology available to him during that day, and it's really difficult for us to impart our 21st century mindset on somebody who lived without refrigeration or electricity for most of their lives to see whether he would be pro or con that. Um, if I had to venture a guess, I'm, I think that he would have played with every kind of variation he could possibly find. So, I don't know. And there are some advantages to um, using, like, CRISPR technology, for instance. So, with that white blackberry that was infected with the virus, um, you could take CRISPR and cut out that chunk of virus without even, without even adding anything else to the genome. Um, and then you would have a virus-free plant, and that would take, like, six months instead of the two years that it took us to do heat treatment and tissue culture. Um, very interesting well thank you so much for opening our minds to this whole story teaching us about luther burbank and what he did i so appreciate you coming on the show thank you well and would you like to help me choose our winner today because you're here on the line i need your help okay so what i have in front of me is i have a little bucket of the the people that sent in emails and i'm going to move my hands around So, Rachel, could you say the word now? And when you say that word, I will be, we'll see whichever piece of paper I'm holding will be the winner. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds fun. Okay. So I'm already touching the pieces of paper. You tell me when. All right. Let's go with, wait for it. How about now? Okay, good. Thank you. All right. Let's see who did we get. Rose from Washington, D.C., you are the winner. How exciting. Okay, so we're... Congratulations, Rose. Yes, congratulations, Rose. And um, thank you so much again for coming on the show today, Rachel. It was a lot of fun, and I can't wait to meet you in person one day when I go to the uh, gardens there. Oh, yes, I'll give you the curator's tour. That sounds fantastic. Okay, you take care and enjoy your day. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. So that was Rachel Spaeth, the garden curator of the Luther Burbank Home and Gardens in Santa Rosa, California. And that is it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I do hope you enjoyed the show. To listen again or to download other episodes, all you have to do is go to orchardpeople.com slash podcast. And if you want me to teach you some amazing fruit tree care skills that will help your trees thrive, sign up for one of my courses at orchardpeople.com slash workshops. My courses are great for both beginner and intermediate level growers, or you can check out my book at orchardpeople.com slash book. You have been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner from orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I do look forward to seeing you again next time and digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you. Take care. listening to the urban forestry radio show on reality radio 101 
To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees, or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.